Hey, good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas to you. It's so great to see all of you here and see some new faces. Thank you if you're a guest with us for joining us this morning. Uh, my name is Dan Halleck. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, I'm glad that you've, you've joined us this Christmas Eve morning. Uh, we've been in the book of Acts uh, for a couple months now, but since it's Christmas Eve, we're going to take a, a break from that this morning. And, and I want to address uh, a timely and, and a important topic, which is why the virgin birth of Jesus matters. And I want to start by reading two passages from the Bible that describe Jesus' virgin conception and birth. So first let's read Luke's account, which he wrote around the year 62 AD. He writes in Luke 1, 26 to 35, In the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Okay, second, let's, let's go on and read Mas Matthew's account, uh, which he wrote around the year 60 A.D. And he writes in Matthew 1, 18 to 25, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So one of the most important and obviously most unique parts about Jesus' birth story is that his mother Mary was a virgin. So Jesus' parents, Joseph and Mary, were engaged to be married. Uh, they planned to sleep in the same bed one day and then have kids, but God had other plans. God made Mary pregnant with a baby before Mary and Joseph ever got married, before they slept in the same bed together. And the baby in Mary's stomach was no ordinary baby. This was God's son, Jesus. 
And unlike you and me who have a biological mother and a biological father, Jesus had a biological mother but no biological father because God, the Holy Spirit, put Jesus inside Mary's stomach. At the beginning of the 20th century, an increasing number of skeptics argued that because the virgin birth, uh, the virgin birth of Jesus does not make scientific sense, then it could not have happened. Uh, this was part of a movement called the demythologizing of the Bible. Okay, it's a big word, demythologizing. Many theologically liberal Christians began to teach that the Bible contains both myths and truths. And so they reasoned that the only responsible thing to do is to demythologize the Bible by ignoring those parts of Scripture that appear unscientific or fantastical. And as a result of that movement, there was a clear split that happened in the 20th century uh, between two groups of Christians in America and in Europe. Christians who believed that the Bible is completely true, as the apostles did, as the earliest Christian did, did, they began to be called fundamentalists. And Christians who believed that the Bible is partially true or somewhat authority, authoritative, they were called liberals or enlightened. Okay? One of the major doctrines that theological liberals wanted to demythologize was the doctrine of the virgin birth. Or more accurately, what we're talking about is the virgin conception of Jesus. And today, sadly, this teaching is still under attack. Uh, not, not only by theologically liberal churches and denominations, but the virgin birth is under attack by influential voices within evangelical churches in our country. One of, one of the main reasons we don't hear about it very often, though, is because <clears throat> if you visit a lot of churches, many pastors no longer preach from the Bible. Um, they, they'll tell funny stories, read a few Bible verses thrown in there, and then call it a day. But I think we would see if more pastors actually preach from the Bible, then their beliefs about the Bible would come to the surface. And it would likely become clear that many pastors and Christians do not believe in the importance of many of the Bible's teachings. Let me, let me read to you a couple of quotes about the virgin birth by two of the most influential pastors in American evangelicalism in, from the past 10 years. Here's what the first pastor said. What if tomorrow someone digs up definitive proof that Jesus had a real earthly biological father named Larry and archaeologists find Larry's tomb and do DNA samples and prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that the virgin birth was, was really just a bit of mythologizing the gospel writers threw in to appeal to the followers of the Mithra and Dionysian religious cults that were hugely popular at the time of Jesus, whose gods had virgin births. But what if you, as you study the origin of the word virgin, you discover that the word virgin in the Gospel of Matthew actually comes from the book of Isaiah, and, and then you find out that in the Hebrew language at that time, the word virgin could mean several things. Could you still be a Christian? Is the way of Jesus still the best possible way to live? And here's what another pastor said last year. Actually, it might have been this year. Nobody was expecting the virgin birth. It was not critical to the story of the Messiah coming to deliver the nation of Israel, and making this up doesn't help the story. In fact, this was a weird idea. It was a kind of Greek leftover from Greek mythology. In Greek mythology, the Greek gods were always mating with Greek, beautiful human females in order to have these god-person creatures like Hercules and Helen of Troy, whose father was Zeus. 
The whole idea of God's mating with humans to create these God-human creatures was not Jewish. It was Greek. It was pagan. Christianity does not hinge on the truth or even the stories around the birth of Jesus. It hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. So the idea that these really influential pastors were were suggesting is that what we believe about the details of Jesus' life and his birth does not uh, directly affect our relationship with him. That even if those things aren't true, I can still experience God's presence in my life and, and be in touch with God. That argument is illogical, and more importantly, it is grossly unfaithful to God's word. This morning we want to look at God's word, okay? We want to find out why our beliefs about him, about the virgin birth, determine everything about our relationship with him, okay? Specifically, I'll give you eight reasons why the virgin birth of Jesus matters for you. Eight reasons why the virgin birth of Jesus matters. First, to disbelieve the virgin birth of Jesus is to disbelieve in the truthfulness of God's word. In John 10, 35, Jesus said that scripture cannot be broken. In other words, each and every verse of the Bible is interdependent, interdependent on all the other Bible verses. And so you can't break off the verses or teachings that you don't like or that you don't believe. Scripture doesn't work that way. Either you believe all of it or you don't believe any of it. God does not allow us to only believe what we want to believe about Scripture. It's not a buffet. And, and that's because Scripture is God's word that he says he breathed out all of it. He breathed it out. It's breathed of the Holy Spirit. It was written down by humans as they were gu- uh, guided by the Holy Spirit. And so when we disbelieve any part of God's word, which he breathed out, ultimately we're disbelieving God himself. Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word is truth. You add it all up, what do you get? Truth. And every one of your righteous rules endures forever. When we affirm only those parts of scriptures that we want to believe, then we're actually, this is what we're doing, we're trying to create God in our image. We're trying to create create a God who doesn't actually exist instead of learning what the true creator God is really like. The purpose of scripture is not to shape God, it's to shape us. And God wants to use his word to to shape our beliefs, to shape our desires, to shape our lives so that we might live our lives according to his good design. In John 17, 17, Jesus prayed to God the Father, sanctify them in your truth Your word is truth. So God sanctifies, means he he shapes us into the kind of people he wants us to be by his word. And so for the follower of God, there can be no attempt to demythologize God or his word. Uh, God has said that his son Jesus was born of a virgin, and we who follow Jesus believe that. Even though we, we, we cannot fully understand how God made that happen, but This is the thing. The fact that we can't understand everything God does reminds us we're not God, okay? If we could understand his brain and all of his ways, that would put us on the same level as God. To disbelieve in the virgin birth is to disbelieve in the truthfulness of God's word, which is ultimately the same as disbelieving God himself. Second, 
the virgin birth of Jesus matters because it fulfilled biblical prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. Um, contrary to the words of the pastor I, I read a few minutes ago, um, who, who, who said that uh, nobody was expecting the virgin birth and that the virgin birth was not critical to the story of the Messiah. That's not what the Bible says, okay? Not only had it been revealed 700 years before the birth of Jesus that he would be born to a virgin, but also the virgin birth was a critical criteria used to identify the Messiah. So 700 years, about 700 BC before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah wrote, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Okay, now let's, we got to talk about this because it's, worth, it's, it's, it's one of the things you'll hear. Some people argue that the word for virgin here actually means young woman and not virgin. And it is true that Hebrew words often have a number of different meanings, including this word virgin. And, but a little research shows that virgin is the right way to translate this word, okay? So if you didn't know this, the Old Testament, the scriptures written before Jesus' life um, were written in Hebrew. In the New Testament, those scriptures written in the first century by the apostles, uh, uh, that was written in Greek. Um, and so we're talking about an Old Testament text which was written in Hebrew right here. So Pastor Kevin DeYoung, he says this, listen, there are no clear references in the Old Testament where this Hebrew word does not mean virgin. This word occurs nine times in the Old Testament, and wherever the context makes its meaning clear, the word refers to a virgin. That's why you always have to look at the context. It really defines the meaning of a word. Now, another thing, when, around the year 200 BC, the Jews, because uh, culture was changing, the Greek world was growing, the Jews translated their Hebrew scriptures, that Old Testament, uh, into Greek. And, and the translation was called the Septuagint, okay? Now, um, when they translated into Greek, when the Jewish scholars translated into Greek, they specifically chose the Greek word for virgin when they specifically could have cho chosen a number of different Greek words that simply mean young woman. And in addition to that, uh, this prophecy in Isaiah clearly says, this is the big one, you guys, that the Lord would give us a clear sign to know which baby was the Messiah. That sign was that the Messiah would be conceived and born to a virgin. If God's sign was that the Messiah would be conceived in, and born to a young woman, that's not much of a sign. Right? That happens every day. The sign God gave was that the Messiah would be born to a virgin. So you can't miss the sign. Okay? Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, was conceived in and born to a virgin. And his birth was the fulfillment of an ancient prophecy in the Bible. It was uh, an affirmation that his birth was an affirmation of the trustworthiness of Scripture. The trustworthiness of biblical prophecy. And the virgin birth was a crucial criteria for identifying this Messiah sent from heaven. Third, the virgin birth of Jesus matters because it affirms the eternal pre-existence of Jesus, God the Son. The one true God who, who says he's three in one, he's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, he's always existed. It means he has never not existed. 
And this means that Jesus did not begin to exist when his body was conceived in Mary's stomach. In fact, during his public ministry, think about all the things Jesus said about his glory beforehand, before he came. Uh, he said that he used the, the title for God. He said, I am before Abraham was, I am. And Abraham was the father of the Jews. He said, I was before Abraham. And we call this the eternality of God, the fact that God is eternal. And it's one of the traits that makes him set apart and different from all of us. It, 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 it's, it's one of the ways he is set apart from his creation, that God is the only uncreated thing. He is the creator who brought everything else into existence. And Jesus' eternal existence before entering our world is an important part of understanding, understanding the virgin birth. Uh, there was another ancient prophecy named Micah who wrote this prophecy around 700 years before Jesus' birth. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And then you fast forward to Galatians 4.4, 4, and it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, and think about this. Jesus always talks about being sent from God the Father. He never talks about being created by God the Father. God the Father did not create his son. God the Father sent forth his son. God the Father sent his eternal son Jesus from heaven to earth to be our savior. That's good news. Fourth, the virgin birth of Jesus matters because it was the way that Jesus was born without original sin. I know I'm talking a lot about theology. I was so funny. I was like, you know, we may not have a big crowd, so I'll just go a little heavier on theology. And uh, hey, God knew you'd be here. You know, he, he has a message for you, so listen up. Um, in the beginning of the world, in the Garden of Eden, God created two humans, Adam and Eve. And as the man, Adam was the head of his wife and the head of his household, his family. And also Adam was the head of the human race. And so when Adam and Eve rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden, they committed the first sin, which is disobedience to God. They, they, they committed the first sin in the history of humanity. And that sin we sometimes call that sin original sin. And because of that original sin, God, because he's just and good and fair, rightly punished them. And he punished Adam and Eve as well as the entire human race that Adam represented. And God's punishment for our sin against him is death. That's what he says. And because all humans are descendants of Adam, then all of us carry with us the curse of original sin and its punishment of death. Romans 5.12 puts it this way. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. So, so the punishment of death includes physical death on earth, as well as experiencing all the things that lead to physical death, and as well as ex experiencing the pain and sorrow that many of us have suffered uh, personally and socially because of death. And God's punishment of death also includes spiritual death because we're not just physical beings. We are 
a body and soul united, okay? And so God's punishment of death spiritually means that from the moment of our conception, we carry the guilt of Adam's sin in us, and we are dead to God. We're dead in the sense that loving God, knowing God, is no longer our nature. Because of original sin, what is natural to us now is to worship and love many things in the place of God. So in our bodies, what we naturally want, if you think about what your flesh wants, it's to live for my own glory, it's to chase after what my body wants, all the lusts of my flesh and all the lusts of the world around me. That's what my natural inclination is. And so even though we are born physically alive, we're born spiritually dead because of sin, original sin in us. And we read Jesus says that after our lives on earth, the reality of spiritual death comes to fruition when our spirits will leave our body and God sends humans to a place of eternal torment called hell. This is a horrible mess. This is the worst mess ever. Because for us, selfishly on our side, we're incapable of being conceived and born without original sin in us. We can't, we don't have the, you get this? We don't have the resources to escape this thing on our own. Psalm 51.5 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. So at the moment of conception, we're sinful because of the original sin of Adam that has been passed down to us. Original sin is in the seed of Adam, which was passed to his children, and which they passed to their children, and which has passed down through every generation to every child on planet Earth. Listen, the only way a person could not have Adam's sinful seed passed down to them is if that person's biological father came from outside Adam's lineage. lineage. And that's exactly what happened in the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. Instead of the seed of a sinful man fertilizing the egg of a sinful woman, Jesus was conceived when the seed of the sinless and holy God fertilized the egg of a sinful woman. In this way, Jesus was conceived inside a woman, but he did not inherit the original sin of Adam. And so this is why they say, even at his birth, Jesus is holy from his birth. He's the only human called holy from birth. You get that? He was, he was holy from the moment of his conception. That means that Psalm 51.5 describes all of us, but it doesn't describe Jesus. Jesus was not brought forth in iniquity. Jesus' mother did not conceive him in sin. Hebrews 7.26 says this about Jesus, for it was fitting indeed that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. The virgin birth was the way that Jesus was born without original sin. Okay, fifth, the virgin birth of Jesus matters because it was the way that the Lord provided the perfect God-man sacrifice for our sin. So in order for us to be at peace with God again, our sin and guilt must be removed from us. 
And like we've seen, we can't escape God's curse. We can't get rid of our sin by our own power. And this is where the gospel, the good news of God, comes in. That God, who has loved us, even in our disobedience to him, made a way for us to escape sin's relentless grip on us. Because we need a human, a human being who doesn't have sin to take our sin from us and then to suffer that sin for us. And that person doesn't exist on earth. The only way we could find that kind of person is if he came from outside the earth. And so that's exactly where God brought a perfect human from, from heaven, okay? He wasn't human until he entered the womb. Because God the Son was born to a woman, a human woman, Jesus was entirely human. And because he was conceived by the seed of God and not sinful man, Jesus was a perfect human without original sin. And because Jesus was God's son, he was able then to live a perfect life, holy, without sin, that no other human being has ever lived or could live. And as the God-man, fully God, fully man, Jesus chose to sacrifice his life to save ours. He became our sin for us on the cross. He, he, he bore the weight of the guilt of our sin. And then he physically and spiritually suffered God's wrath toward our sin for us that we deserve to suffer. Hebrews 2.14 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And after he put our sin to death, in his own death, Jesus was buried. We read that he was placed in a tomb for three days, in a rich man's tomb, like ancient prophecies predicted. And after three days in the tomb, Jesus did what nobody else has done. He rose back to life in glory and in power. Okay? He is alive. That's what it means. Jesus is alive today. He tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his only son Jesus to the world so that whoever trusts in Jesus will not die, but will have everlasting life. That's what Christmas is all about, you guys. Christmas is a reminder to take your eyes off of this world and, and your sin and yourself. And turn to Jesus. And take your, put your eyes on him. And if you haven't trusted in Jesus before for eternal life, trust in him. Turn and be baptized. That's what the message of Jesus has been. And I'm thrilled to share with you that uh, several people after last week's sermon um, came to me and, the, and they trust in Jesus and they want to be baptized really soon. So that's really exciting. Yes. And if you were here last week, you knew I was ready to go. I was like, where's the nearest bathtub? We got to do this. And, uh, and they said, well, we really want our parents to be. I'm like, okay, that makes sense. Well, we can wait for your parents. So that's going to be a, an exciting way to start the new year. Um, the virgin birth was the way that the Lord provided the perfect God-man sacrifice for our sin. Sixth, uh, the virgin birth of Jesus matters because it displayed the divine holiness of Jesus and the divine glory of Jesus. Uh, that Jesus was conceived totally differently than any, ever, any other human being obviously points to his uniqueness, right? But the fact that Jesus was conceived by God, 
declares that Jesus Christ is divine. He is God. He is holy. He's set apart from all creation. He's unlike anybody we've ever known before. And this is why angels from God were sent to Mary and Joseph to tell them how Jesus would be conceived. This is why shepherds and magi dropped what they were doing and they traveled to Bethlehem to worship Jesus when he was born. This is why the night that, that Jesus was born, the heavenly host of angels, Jesus' angels, appeared to the shepherds and worshiped God, saying, Glory to God in the highest, and peace among those with whom he is blessed. The virgin birth was not a normal birth. It was the entrance of the one holy God into humanity. The virgin birth displayed the divine holiness and glory that is Jesus Christ alone. Seventh, disbelieving in the virgin birth robs our triune Lord of the honor and worship he is due. Disbelieving in the virgin birth robs our triune Lord of the honor and worship he's due. See, the Lord deserves, how do we respond to the virgin birth? We respond in worship. Not just singing, singing songs, yes, but we respond in obedience. We respond in saying, God, I want to follow you. And the Lord deserves this. He deserves our thanks for being our Savior who was born of a virgin. It does matter how God came to us. Okay? It does matter that Jesus was the God-man born of a virgin to save sinners. It does matter that, that we believe God when he tells us in his word that this is exactly how he came to save us. So to say that the virgin birth is insignificant or that believing in the virgin birth is optional dishonors God. It, that is a mindset that says we can worship God for what we want to worship him for and not for the salvation plan that he provided for us. The story of Jesus, if you look at it, one of the cool things about the story of Jesus is that it's very, it reveals the Trinity really clearly, okay? Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all played a key role in it. God the Father is the one who sent the angel uh, Gabriel to Mary to tell her that God was pleased with her and that she would become pregnant with Jesus. Uh, God the Father is the one who would give to Jesus the throne of his father David, his ancient father David, so that he might rule his heavenly kingdom forever. And then the Holy Spirit we read about specifically in this passage, that he's the one who came to Mary and overshadowed her and catalyzed Jesus' conception in Mary's uterus. And that God the Son, Jesus, is the one sent forth from God. He, he left heaven. He came to earth. He added to himself human flesh for God's glory and for our sake. God, is, uh, God the Son, Jesus, is the baby they named Emmanuel, which means God with us. He's the one they said, name him Jesus, because that means the Lord saves and so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, deserves our devotion and our worship and obedience today. Because this is a glorious salvation that God has provided for everyone who trusts in Jesus. Finally, eighth, uh, disbelieving in the virgin birth robs you of the joy of the Lord's incarnation and of the Lord's salvation. One of the great gifts that God gives to us this time of year is the joy of celebrating his coming. The joy of celebrating uh, that God came to us because he loves us. 
And as we look at pictures or uh, front yards with the nativity scene, and as, as we sing songs about his birth, it is, it is right and good to step back and realize this is an awesome thing. This is an awesome thing. The love of God, the gift of Jesus, the virgin birth, these are things worth celebrating and standing in awe of. But if you don't believe the virgin birth of Jesus, if you don't believe God when he tells you he was born of a virgin because that is what was required to save you from eternal pain and torment, then you miss out on the celebration of what Christmas is really about. You miss out on the joy of Jesus' salvation. If you don't believe that through the virgin birth, Jesus became the perfect God-man who could atone for your sins, then you won't experience the joy of partaking in everything he earned for you. You You won't enjoy partaking in the benefits of his salvation for sinners. But Jesus wants that joy for you. Hear that? And I want that joy for you. So we trust Jesus. We turn to Jesus. If you consider the, the virgin birth to be insignificant or optional or, or untrue, if you don't believe in that, then how can you believe in a God who raises people from the dead? How can you believe that Jesus truly satisfied the punishment for your sin on the cross? Where is your hope in the face of death? In, in a God who is greater and more powerful than death is? In a God who's more powerful than sin and hell is? And the grave and Satan Trust in Jesus for eternal life. That's the message here. Trust that Jesus' word, his Bible, is trustworthy. It is true. And worship him for who he is. He's our awesome savior. And we can trust in and be sanctified by his word that he's revealed so, so that by the power of his spirit, we can become more holy like he wants us to be. And that journey towards holiness has a lot of bumps and a lot of setbacks. And that's why we live gospel-centered lives. Which means that when we mess up, when we, okay, that's what the Bible says means to be holy. I'm not holy. I did this right. It's real obvious. Well, I trust in Jesus who fulfilled that holiness for me in his life. And that's why I'm righteous before God. And thankfully, because God loves me, I confess this to him. I confess this sin. And I embrace the forgiveness that he has bought for me on the cross and I turn my eyes on Jesus and I keep my eyes on Jesus and I thank him I'm not saved. I thank him that I'm not saved because of my works or my holiness. I'm saved because of his holiness that he imputed or gave to me on the cross. That's, a, that's the best Christmas gift there is. We want to enjoy God, enjoy his love, abide in his gift. That's the gift he wants us to enjoy. So let me review this. The virgin birth of Jesus matters because first, to disbelieve in the virgin birth of Jesus is to disbelieve in the truthfulness of God's word. Second, because it fulfilled biblical prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. Third, because it affirms the eternal pre-existence of Jesus, God the Son. Fourth, because it was the way that Jesus was born without original sin. Fifth, because it was the way that the Lord provided the perfect God-man sacrifice for our sin. Sixth, because it displayed the divine holiness and glory of Jesus. 
Seven, disbelieving in the virgin birth robs our triune Lord of the honor and worship he is due. And eight, it matters because disbelieving in the virgin birth robs you of the joy of the Lord's incarnation and salvation. Let me close with a quote from a man named J. Gresham Machen, who in the middle of the controversy between fundamentals and those who are enlightened, um, wrote this definitive book, which I, I, I had this great goal of reading this week, and then I opened it, I'm like, I'm not, this thing's like 500 pages and way above my head. <laughs> this ain't gonna happen. But I found a great paragraph <laughs> in the conclusion that I wanna share with you. He says this, deny or give up the story of the virgin birth and inevitably you are led to evade either the high biblical doctrine of sin or else the full biblical presentation of the supernatural person of our Lord. If we believe as the Bible teaches that all mankind are under an awful curse, then we shall rejoice in knowing that there entered into the sinful race from the outside one upon whom the curse did not rest, save as he bore it for those whom he redeemed by his blood. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this great news that we have in you. We thank you for coming to us this way. God, I just pray that today in all of the busyness and madness and anticipation that we experience and excitement that you would help us to keep our eyes on you and celebrate you and give you the worship that you deserve. I thank you, God, for those you've brought here this morning, uh, those who trust you and, and those who don't know where they stand with you, God, but I pray that as they look at their hearts and lives, they will see their need for you, Jesus, their need for this Savior who alone can give them what they need, which is salvation and reconciliation with you, their God. We thank you that you tell us that we, by trusting in your work for us, receive salvation. It is not by getting our lives perfectly together first, or by figuring out every single answer about every theological question first, and then we come to you. We thank you that we come as broken people to you, and that your spirit breaks into our lives and makes us born again through faith. We wanna praise you today and right now through song, and we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.